You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Jobs like that, opportunities like that just don't come around very often. In fact, they don't come around. Not for someone who's been an assistant manager at Step 7 to then be offered to become the youngest national team head coach in the world, which I was in 2010 at 32 years old. They just don't come about. So I said yes, and then everything else I would just work out. It's not taught in a qualification. It's not taught in your pro license when you're at a difficult club and things are going badly. How do you deal with it? Just saying, well, stay positive, put a smile on your face. That doesn't work when you've got 247 million people attacking you on social media. Procedure were held in the changing room for the best part of two hours. And the army were involved, moving boats to the side nearest the stadium. Players were evacuated onto these boats, taken straight to the airport and flew home in their kit. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Simon McMenemy. He is a very experienced football manager. In fact, probably one of the most experienced football managers you've never heard of. His success has come in Southeast Asia. He was at one time the youngest national team manager in the world. And uh, he's not that old now. And he's got two national team jobs under his belt, including managing the biggest country in the world in which football is the number one sport. That's Indonesia. As some of you may know, I've spent a lot of time working in Indonesian football. Big enthusiast for football in that part of the world. But it does have its problems. Simon has experienced the highs and the lows of working in Indonesian football. And he talks about them in a very candid manner. This episode is brought to you by PTI. They are an integrated digital and technology agency. Click the link in the show notes to find out more about them. And if you want to know more about me... Mr. Richard Clark, I am on social media. MrRichardClark.com is the place you need to go. If you want to find out about my consultancy, read my blog, sign up to my newsletter, or listen to further podcasts. Anyway, let's say apa kabar, or hello, to the wonderful and slightly crazy world of Indonesian football by talking to this man. Well, my name is Simon Alexander Michael McMenemy. I am 42 years old. I am a professional football coach of around... 10 years experience now that's a very in-depth introduction (laughs) (laughs) thanks for speaking to me Simon so tell me where you are and what your circumstances are at the moment well currently we are in myself my wife and my uh my young son are stationed in Jakarta um after just finishing with the Indonesian national team I've been in Southeast Asia for around 10 years now and have bounced around the area quite a lot, starting with the Philippines, uh, going through Vietnam, Maldives, back to the Philippines, Indonesia once or twice. Um, And then coming back here in 2017 and have been here since. uh, Picked up a club team, won the league, followed it up with a a third place finish the next year and and managed to get myself a national team position. And we've just kind of halfway through, we were just halfway through World Cup qualification games when uh, when coronas kind of hit us uh, i've i've since left the position and um we're currently stationed here just awaiting the next uh the next opportunity or, or or working out what's best for us to do once and if well if and once football comes back post coronas so yeah it's, it's we're in a kind of holding pattern at the minute just waiting to see what the future holds you have one of the best Wikipedia pages I've ever seen because <laughs> of one thing. Your career goes assistant manager at Worthing, 
national team manager for the Philippines. <laughs> I sense there's yeah. a little bit of a story between that leap. So could you please tell me how the hell that happened? <laughs> um, it's one of those stories that I get to tell a lot because like you say, it does make for some kind of interesting uh, suggestion as to how does that happen? And, and really it shouldn't, you know, really and truly that, that shouldn't happen. Uh, certainly in today's football, but I was working for uh, Worthing Football Club, which were about step six, step seven back in the day, 2009, 2010. And I was sitting on Facebook talking to some of the old guys I used to coach, some of the under 18s from uh, a team called Burgess Hill Football Club. And they're actually Philippine heritage. So one or two of them have played, they're a, a three brothers, essentially. And two of them have already played for the national team. And I was talking to one of them on Facebook and he was just simply saying, how's Worthing going? What are you up to? I said, well, season's finished. I've just left, just working out what, what I'm going to be doing next season. And he said, well, um, how about throwing your CV in for the national team of the Philippines? And I just laughed at him, really. I said, sorry, you know, I've been coaching a long time, but this is the national team we're talking about. I'm going from, I wasn't even number one at Worthing. I was an assistant. Um, so I was assistant manager there and he's saying, well, it's all right, just, just throw it in and, you know, we, we'll talk you up. We just need someone to see us through qualification. You know, there's no real expectation. They lost their coach uh, a week or two ago and he was a British guy. So they're kind of used to that pattern of work. Um, yeah, don't, just throw it in. Don't worry about it. So, you know, reluctantly I said, all right, yeah, why not? You know, I'll, I'll throw it in. And, and, and I did. And I, I went home, I told the wife, I said, you, you never guess what I've just, I've just applied for the Philippines national team job. And she just laughed at me and, and went back to the kitchen, you know, as she was cooking dinner. And I just forgot about it, really, for, for the next six weeks. And then I'm sitting at, at my office. I was sitting at my desk in my office, um, staring out the window, thinking about football. And the phone rang. And it was this little Filipino guy. And he said, um, hello, this is uh, Ace Bright from the Philippines Football Federation. We have the, the president of the federation would like to speak to you. He'd like to have a chat with you about your, your, your thoughts. So I got on the phone with him and had a little discussion with him. And, you know, before um, before applying, I, I used to work for Nike. I worked for Nike for two years and I had some, uh, you know, I had the names like I've done videos with Ronaldinho and Marco Materazzi and Pato and some of the Nike sponsored athletes we used to have to work on videos with and we designed videos for them. So I had all this on my CV and I, ha I have a feeling that impressed people, the fact that I've worked with these guys. Um, not so much my coaching background, but I had Ronaldinho on my CV. And he started asking me my, my thoughts towards the job and, and how would I approach the job and what did I, you know, how did I see it progressing and things like this. And I, I really wasn't, I was winging it, if I'm honest with you. I, I didn't really know too much about Philippines football. And I certainly wasn't expected to be interviewed for the job. Um, but by the end of the phone call, he offered me it. And um, I said, uh, look, I'm going to need a couple of days, but, you know, I, I would, I'd like to take the job up. I just need to work out the logistics of it. And, and he replied to me, well, that's great, but we need you in Manila in 10 days' time. And I'm currently employed at the time in Hayward Heath in Sussex. So, I, I mean, I accepted the job pretty much and uh, stood up from my desk, put the phone down, stood up from my desk, walked in to speak to the managing director of the company and, and said, um, Ken, I'm going to have to leave. I've just been offered a dream job of national team head coach in the Philippines. And I couldn't quite believe I was saying it out loud, but he kind of stood up from his desk, didn't say a word, walked out. I thought I was in a bit of trouble and came back with a bottle of champagne and, and we sat there and had a toasted uh, the job and he made everything nice and easy. And I went home and told the wife and said, Sarah, you remember I told you that job in the Philippines that I applied for? And she went, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
well, I've just accepted it. They've just offered it, offered me it, um, and I'm leaving to go to Manila in ten days' time. And she just burst into tears. Um, and that pretty much was it. I, I packed up, got the stuff together. Didn't really didn't have too much time to think about it or be scared about it. Just kind of the tickets arrived, got on a plane, arrived in Manila, and, and started work. And it and it kind of all went from there. That's, that's really I got the job over Facebook. <laughs> So it was a, a shock to everyone, I think, not just not just people in football. My, my family were, where are you going? What You're going to the Philippines? Why? It was such a shock, in fact, that I couldn't even ask the salary. I had no idea how much I was getting paid. I had to, to work that out, actually, once I got there. So, yeah, it was a shock to everyone um, and not something you hear every day. That's kind of the decision you have to make if you want to be a football coach, right? Because you were on the path of uh, American scholarship, and then you had uh, an injury over there which stopped your ability to become a pro. So you moved into coaching. You were one of those guys that went into coaching young. But of course, you don't have a long professional background as a player or anything like that. So those are the decisions you have to make, right, if you want to make this happen. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's very much, it was obviously just something that I was never going to turn down, you know. and and. I didn't even ask the salary. I had no idea how much I was being paid. I was moving to another part of the world. I didn't have anyone's phone number. I just accepted the job because jobs like that, opportunities that, like that just don't come around very often. In fact, they don't come around. Not, not for someone who's been an assistant manager at step seven to then be offered to become the youngest national team head coach in the world, which I was in 2010 at 32 years old. They just don't come about. So I said yes. And then everything else, I would just work out. I knew it was a massive opportunity and I had a feeling that that would be my one great opportunity to get into pro football. I mean, I was at step seven. I was still quite some way away from being in professional football and, and I'd only ever seen myself being in professional sports somehow. I just always thought it would be a player, but I was always fairly switched on to the, the tactical side of the game and, and, and how, you know, uh, how I was being coached and what coaches were saying to me and, Fortunately, I was able to retain enough of that information that, that when it mattered and I had to, to do it myself, I was able to kind of uh, almost regurgitate some of the stuff I'd been taught over the years at, at the various levels I've played at. And, and it just it happened to click. And, you know, for want of it, I, I was quite lucky, certainly to get the opportunity. But once to get there and to make it successful, um, that was a that was something a little bit more unexpected than probably getting the job in the first place. What badges did you have at the time and how have you educated yourself since? Because it, it seems to me you've got a fast track in terms of practical experience, but these days there's an academic side to coaching, which is needed, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very true. Um, and in some ways you could argue that's kind of held me back and caused a bit of an issue in that I got the job on a B licence uh, and I finished my B licence in the UK. And, and at the time I was... I was a development officer for Brighton and Hove Albion. So I was working technically in football, just not full-time elite coaching. Um, so I had a B license and um, being thrown into that job and, and really ever since, right up until probably, when did I get the, probably about another three years after that, it took me to get the A license. And unfortunately, I couldn't get the A license through the FA because that would have meant traveling home and leaving the job I was in at the time, which was an Indonesian club team. And there was no other way of doing it. So I, I had to get the AFCA license just to kind of be as qualified as the guys I'm working with. Now, practically, even today, you know, I've probably got more experience and have handled more situations 
than a lot of a license and certainly pro license coaches. Um, but I'm, I'm still yet to get that pro license just simply because of the time it takes to get there. And, uh, the time away from work or the time away from a club, it would need for me to commit to that. So practical experience. Yeah. I, I can write a book on the things I've seen in this part of the world. Um, but I'm still on an A license. Um, I'm a two-time national team head coach. And that has always caused a bit of an issue that there's always been, you know, questioning, well, he's not a pro license coach. How can he really be competing at this level? So it's something I have to address. And hopefully over the next 12 months, hopefully, touch wood, post-corona, you know, the courses will be put back on and I'll be able to, to rectify that. What are the practical issues of coaching a team when you don't speak the language because presumably you don't speak the, the language in the Philippines I don't think you spoke Bahasa in Indonesia if I'm right is that correct yeah that's true that's true I'm, I'm a little bit better now um, I really I think it's a skill and it's something that really you have to work on it takes a lot of time to get to the point where you can get everything across and, and what it does it, it, as a start point you know you can't speak the language so you're thinking okay well there's verbal communication out the window. How else can I communicate with these players? What else can I do to really get my message across in a language they can understand without actually even open my, opening my mouth? So I draw a lot of diagrams. I have a whiteboard next to the pitch every time I coach so that you know everything I'm saying, if they're not actually understanding it through the translator or maybe the translator gets it wrong, at least there's a picture of what I want them to do on a board somewhere that they can relate what they're hearing to what they're actually seeing and, and start to create a picture in their mind. So I draw a lot of diagrams for them. Every session I put it up on a whiteboard and talk through in our introduction to the session. Um, I demonstrate as much as I possibly can, uh, you know, another way of learning. Um, and I give them take home things every now and again. You know, if, if we've done an important session that has a bearing on how we're going to play, I'll put it down on a piece of paper so that they can digest the pictures once they get home and, we did that session today. It was good, but I didn't understand. Oh, he wanted me to go there. Oh, okay. That, that diagram, the arrow's going, oh, right. Okay. I understand that now. So firstly, I think it really makes you think about how you communicate. And when verbal is not on the table, you know, it really forces your hand in other directions. And I think all around, it makes you a better coach. But to actually work with a translator is, like I say, is a skill in itself. You can't just kick off. You can't just go crazy at half time. You can't just start taking the paint off the walls because you've got a poor little Filipino Indonesian lad stood next to you who's trying to translate everything you're saying. But obviously he, he can't necessarily match the tone. If you're going crazy and throwing cups of tea around the changing room, you know, it looks a bit funny once you stop for then him to take over and say it in a in just a spoken word. So um how you approach these things is is it really is quite difficult. And, and, and really coaching in bullet points, allowing the translator to understand what you're saying and, and to be able to, to say that sentence before then moving on is, is certainly a skill because you have to rein it in a little bit. And it's just, you know, it, it, it comes through. There's no qualification that teaches you that. You don't learn that on the pro license. You're not taught that at a license level. That's, that's the experience that you have to go through. You have to practically live through that in order to, to be good at it at the end and, and, to make sure you get your communication through to your players. It's, it's not an easy task, um, not easy in, in, any, in any stretch. And psychologically, and in terms of character, personality, what other differences have you found between coaching in England and coaching in 
Asia, Southeast Asia, because it's predominantly the Philippines and Indonesia where you've coached a bit of them all. Yeah, I, honestly, there's a, there's a thousand things I could list, really. But I mean, that's if, a I, book, if I go isn't for it? The, that's a book, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a book all of itself. But I, I think if I go for the probably the two or three main elements, the first one is that really there is a lack of education in players here, and I'm not necessarily talking about being book smart. There is a if you think about the pathway of a young player in the UK from five through to breaking into a first team at 18, 19 years old, that first, um, those first steps of education, of your football education, the, the basics, the, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of everything are missing. They're just not there. Nobody coaches at that level at five, six, seven, eight, right up until probably 13, 14, 15. There isn't a, a structured path for these players certainly in Indonesia and, and other parts of the of Southeast Asia that I've traveled to, they just play and they play 11 v 11 and they get taught in 11 v 11 and they kind of figure it out themselves. They only really get caught, taught specifics once they get to 14, 15, 16 and they get passed into one of the club's younger teams. And even then, really, there's an argument that coaching isn't particularly good. They have to learn almost on the job within an 11 v 11 setting. So once they get to pro level, you start to see these gaps in their knowledge. Well, what do you mean you don't understand how to play wing back in a in a you know a back three? You know, I, I want you as a midfielder, but also a, a, someone who tucks in like a wing back that drops back and helps. To do, oh, I, I don't know how to do that, coach. What, what do you mean? What, what do you mean pressing? I, I, don't, I don't understand. So that drop in there, that level of education is lower. So your your coaching when you first come in has to start. At, you know, you make no assumptions. Start at the basic and go from there, and then you know you don't miss anything. I think the other thing to think about is that players will not, they certainly won't give you an opinion. It's very, very difficult to drag an opinion out of a player. How did you feel about it? What did you think about how he played today? Oh, it was okay, coach. Yeah, but in your position, did you understand what we were doing today? Uh, yeah, kind of. And you really have, it's like blood out of a stone to get that, get that opinion out of them. There's this, this saving face that they don't want to let you down. They don't want to kind of, um, show that they don't understand to, to kind of disappoint you at all. So they'll just give you a very generalized answer without being particularly specific. And of course, you're gauging your, the reaction on, on how much they've understood. You're asking questions to gauge, you know, to evaluate what they've taken out of today's session. And if they're not telling you, that's very, very difficult. Um, so for them to be outward and for them to give you an opinion or to, to uh, to speak up in front of others is there's only very few Indonesians that would actually do that for fear of uh, you know saving face and, and and looking bad in front of others if they were wrong. So those two things are, are are massive in terms of understanding the cultural context that you're working in. And if you don't get those two things, you'll end up either going crazy and shouting yourself out of a job. You'll just have a you'll kick off with everybody that comes near you because you'll be that frustrated. Or your results won't be very good because the message that you're getting across just isn't being understood. It's they're not taking it in um, because you know you have no way of creating that relationship with that individual player. Those two things I think are probably the most important things to think about when working in this part of the world. What about the physical size of the players? Because it struck me when I was working in the Indonesian league. A lot of the foreign imports, it was either a big centre-half or a big centre-forward because they could dominate yeah. uh, size-wise. And obviously, it's, it's a level playing field in, in a sense. Um, but does that affect the way you coach? Because, you know, 
over there, I you know I was a I was a, a medium to a large, probably a large <laughs> to be honest. But that, that's, but, yeah. but, but clothes wise, I was like an extra large at least when I was over there and when I bought any clothes over there. So they are physically smaller. Does that affect the way you coach and play? It does to an extent. I think obviously your defensive line. Um, nine times out of ten, you'll have a foreign centre-back. Not many teams will go for two foreign centre-backs, which means you do have to have a local centre-back that at times is going to have to match up against foreign strikers. And there is a mismatch sometimes. There's, there's no, there's no, you know, there's nothing you can physically do about that. You you try and highlight some, I mean, getting, getting guys into a gym for a start is a difficult thing because like I was talking about, the lack of education, not understanding what it takes to be a professional footballer, they haven't been working in a gym for that long. So they, there isn't that, okay, I've got to up my physical strength here. You have to try and explain to them why they need to do that. But in terms of your actual coaching, yeah, for sure you have to... I, I try very hard to, to, especially at the centre-back position, listen, he's bigger than you. He's going to knock you around all over the place. So you're going to have to be clever. And when I say clever, you're going to have to make good decisions. Now you have to work out what you're good at as a player and what he's good at immediately. Now, if you're playing against someone who's six foot four and built like a, a refrigerator, then don't go body to body with him because he's just going to simply move you out of the way and go and score. So maybe just put your hand on his back and stand off him a little bit and wait for his first touch. Is You're quicker and sharper because you're more agile. So maybe on his first touch, you can just nick it off him a little bit. So under, trying to get players to understand what they are good at and how they can use that to battle against physicality. There are some little players who, just like in the UK, are little terriers. You know, someone like a Dennis Wise, he will just snap someone in half without thinking twice about it. Um, there is aggressive players. There is physical players. But the actual size-wise, the actual physicality of these players, it, it does affect how you coach. Um, you can't just go, oh, yeah, go body to body with him and knock him off the ball. That, that, that means they're probably going to lose. And they'll try and do that. And it's almost like a... You've identified that as a weakness in them, but then you're getting them to play on that. I think it's important that you evaluate what your defence can do. Are they quick? Are they fast? Are they, do they read the game well? Are they nimble? Um, are they good in the air? Do they jump high? And really use one of them or, or work on, on them understanding how to use one of those strengths as opposed to almost playing to the strength of the, of the foreign striker. So it does certainly affect how you coach. Um, it takes a little bit of time to get that into players for them to understand the concept. But basically, you know, play to your strengths. Don't try and play to the strength of these foreign guys. Just want to talk about the season with Bayern Cairo, the season where you won the league. That was a, a season where I was over there. I was there when you won the title. You got this very plain plate type trophy. I remember <laughs> that. It was a temporary trophy, but <laughs> it, it was what was all in the pictures. It was a Big, like, Wimbledon-style plate, like what the ladies' winner gets at Wimbledon, I think. Anyway, um, but that Bayern Cara team, it struck me that what you successfully did there was get them organised, get them very functional, but you had the ability to unlock defences in a way that many teams didn't. I think it was Dimas you had, and was it yeah. a Brazilian player as well? I forget his name. Who were, were two yeah. who had the ability to unlock and that crucial sort of final pass, that crucial killer pass, that Meza Erzul type co contribution was uh, well, perhaps I think I think Dimas a bit more of a dribbler, but that seemed to be the difference, and you managed to hone it together. Thoughts on my assessment there, and what do you think of it? Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's pretty accurate, Richard. Are we 
when I came into the club in 2017, they had a, a Brazilian striker who'd scored 25 goals and was kind of second, third top scorer in the league the previous season. And whenever he didn't play, they'd lose. And the whole team was really built around getting this guy the ball over the top. He would run through and score. And he did it again, well, 25 times he did it. So when I came in, the, the manager said to me, listen, we need to build this team to the point where even if this guy doesn't score, we still win. Or if this guy's injured, we still win. Which is one of those kind of open, ambiguous, generalized uh, targets that you have to try and take on board when you're listening to, to, to non-football people describing what they want their football team to do. So we set about the task of, of evaluating what we were good at. And, and again, I, I go back to this, this idea of evaluation early on. What, what were we good at? What were we not good at? And we weren't good at playing into wide areas and looking for crosses. We, weren't, we didn't have strikers who could finish on crosses. We weren't particularly big and strong in the air. So that was kind of a no-no straight away. And, and I found that the team was set up when I came in to play into wide guys who then attacked from wide areas. But the wide players that we had at the time were very inexperienced and, and we would lose the ball so often. It got very frustrating. So we, we just thought, you know what, we can't keep doing this. We're going to get killed. We give the ball away. Everyone runs forward. We give the ball away in a wide area and we're exposed. But what we did have was a very good understanding of midfield players. We had a very good group of midfield players who were all very technical, loved passing the ball, all able to take the ball on and, and, and understand and take pressure and turn out the other way. Um, so we set about designing a, a team around that. You know, that was one of our strengths that we thought that we had that other teams didn't. We knew we had some of the best young midfielders, central midfielders in the league. So we switched the formation a little bit and we played a diamond in the midfield. We played a 4-4-2 or a 4-4-2 diamond and really looked to dominate the middle of the pitch so that we could all just, you know, two touch, just keep passing the ball and finding these little areas that, that these players were already very good at doing. The, the kind of cherry on the cake, the, the final piece of the jigsaw, if you like, was finding a player to play in behind the strikers to make sure that, like you say, we had that killer pass. And um, at the time, the league was taking on marquee players so there were some quite outlandish names thrown about. You know, Robin Van Persie was mentioned. There was, I was getting CVs, like guys like Tresmana Luar Luar and uh, all these guys were being thrown at me as, as marquee players who played in the Premier League or played at various top leagues around the world. And, and the criteria for a marquee player at the time was they had to, within the last five years, have played at one of the top five leagues in the world. I think UK, Portugal, Italy, Spain... Germany, I think, was the other one. So my experience, um, fortunately, I had signed Marcus Bent from Birmingham back in 2012 to my club, Mucha Cooper, and, and I learned a hell of a lot in that situation. And I, um, you know, I, I, there was a lot of man hours spent on just getting Marcus through the day. It was something very different from him. And it wasn't even coaching. It was man managing a person like that coming into an environment like this. And I learned a lot from that situation. So when we were talking about marquee players, I said, listen, the, the higher level we go, the harder my job's going to be. It's great to turn around and say we have Robin Van Persie playing for us. But the amount of effort and funds and time that it's going to take to keep someone like that happy, to find him the house he wants, to look after his wife, to give him the flights, to blah, 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 blah. And everything that he expects coming into a situation like this, we don't have those facilities. You may be able to afford him, but that doesn't mean we should do it. So we kind of kind of went to the lower level of, if you like, and that's no disrespect to the player we brought in, but to the lower level of the the uh, the, 
rules that we were told would make a marquee player. And uh, I sought out a player who had played in Brunei, so had Asian experience before. And we came across Paolo Sergio, who just finished, he just won the league in Singapore for Brunei and was voted best player of the league. And the head coach of Brunei at the time was a guy called Steve Keane, who used to be Blackburn manager. So I phoned Steve and just said, listen, I'm interested in this player, Paolo, who's just left you. He said, just sign him, sir, just sign him. I said, yeah, but is he, listen, you don't need to ask anymore. Just sign him. He's a great player. Just sign him. So we did. We went ahead and signed him and he he'd played in Portugal, top league, I think four or five years ago. And he really was the key to us being the team you've just described, that, that team that had that extra ability to just find that bit of space and thread a little through ball. Um, we were able to do it again and again and again. And as teams got more used to the way we played, they dropped further and further and further back. And it really was about unlocking defences, especially the second year when we finished third, teams wouldn't come and play us anymore. It was more about stopping us from playing rather than actually winning the game. They weren't concerned about putting the ball in the back of the net. They were more worried about us putting the ball in the back of the net. So it really did become, can we find a way through? Can we unlock that door? Can we find that little pass? And we worked very hard on that. Unfortunately, we had the technical players enough to be able to, to be that team. And I think that when teams rushed to try and go win the game, especially in the last 10 minutes, we were always able to find a response. And I think we scored more goals in the last 10 minutes of the games than, than any other team in the league that season. Uh, just because we had that possession and, and that, that want to try and unlock that door and find that killer pass. And I think it worked very well for us and, and eventually finished in two seasons. You know, we, were, we won the league 2017 and finished third 2018. So probably that second year, 2018, was harder than winning the league, given what people then knew about us. So um, it was crucial the way we played. And I, I think we that came through an evolution of, of what we were good at and what we were not good at and trying to play to our strengths and hide our weaknesses. For those who don't know Indonesian football, Bayern Cairo were very much linked with, uh, with the police, but there were much bigger teams in the country, Persija, Persib, uh, uh, Bayer, all these are bigger teams. Do you think it was a backs-against-the-wall win? Do you think it was a, you were an under-resourced side? I've never quite got a handle on whether Bayern Cairo were as, because certainly the fan base was small, right, in, in comparison to those, yeah. to those other teams, but were the resources as small? I just want to put that victory in context. Um, yeah, some of the, some of the training field, we never trained on the same field, you know, more than three times in a, in a week. We were, we were all over the place. We didn't have a training facility. When I signed for the club, we were based in a different city. And two weeks before the season started, the year we won the league, two, two weeks before the league started, we moved the whole club to Jakarta, to the capital. And obviously Jakarta in Indonesia is Persija. That's the biggest club here. And they have... 45,000 every time they play. So for us to share Jakarta, we were trying to find facilities. We were hiring, you know, any pitch we could get our hands on. The boys were in the bus quite a lot going to training. So yeah, it was a real test. But I think that we always found that that underdog title really helped us. No one expected us. There was no pressure on us. There was no, right up until three games before the end of the season and we're still top of the league. No one really fully expected us to see it out. They still thought that one of the big teams would catch us. But we just kept grinding the results out. And, and you know, I'm very proud to say that it, it wasn't just through sheer luck. It wasn't through, you know, teams just play or playing counter-attack or, or, or sitting really deep with a young team and then breaking. 
we ripped teams apart. We played better football than them. And I think teams just didn't expect us to do that a lot of the time. They didn't understand how we did it and, and how we played. And arguably coaches were lazy in their research about, you know, upcoming games, didn't really study us. But yeah, we, we, we had difficulties, you know, we didn't, we, to, to put it into context, we shared, we ground shared with Procedure Jakarta. Now, when Procedure Jakarta play, like I say, 30, 40, 50,000 every time they play at home. Wednesday afternoon, two o'clock, 45,000 in the stadium. And we ground shared a stadium that was capacity 45,000. We had, we are a three-year-old club. So we had about a thousand fans on a good day who were all off-duty policemen who had been told to wear yellow and show up at the football match. Not necessarily even fans. And when we played at home against Procedure, Procedure would bring... 40,000 away fans to our home game. Persib, who are a two-hour drive away from us in, in Bandung, they would bring 40,000 away fans. So we were always up against it. And, and people just couldn't quite figure out how we kept pulling these results out, given the fact that the odds were, were just stacked against us. But, you know, it's one of those things, a, a perfect storm or, or whatever, whatever you know, you descriptive term you want to use, it, we worked very hard behind the scenes. We were a really good unit, a really close-knit family. By design, we were a close-knit family. Um, and we had players who, who really cared, who really wanted to go out and get it every single time they played, whether it was a way to procedure in front of 45,000 or whether it was home to a smaller team from you know far away in Indonesia with, with no traveling fans. And we're playing in a, in a stadium that holds 40,000 but actually has 300 in it. We went with the same mentality every time we played in it, and it really paid off for us. PTI are an integrated digital and technology agency. They've helped more than 75 global sports clubs and entertainment venues activate digital engagement through consultancy, deployment, and commercialization offerings. Find out more about PTI at ptidigitalgroup.com. That's ptidigitalgroup.com, or click the link in the show notes for this episode. Just for people that don't know, what sort of infrastructure is behind an Indonesian team in comparison to what you might expect in a in a football league team in England? Because you talked about it a little bit, but you know the the medical facilities, the training facilities, the I don't know psychologists, nutrition, all that kind of stuff that that is, has become part and parcel of the English game. Mm. What is in place for a Bayangkara and other teams in the Indonesian league? In terms of buying car, um, we were a team. We're not a club. People, you know, people. All of the 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 names in the league, all of the the teams in the league, are all by name alone football club. But there is no club. It's a team that plays, and it's funded normally by a rich guy or a consortium of rich guys who all put their hand in their pocket. And when we need a new striker, it's literally down to how much the owner is prepared to pay for a new striker. Um, budgets apply to some not to others uh it was proved in that that 2017 season Persib decided to to sign Carlton Cole and not just Carlton Cole but Michael Essien to back him up as well so those two played in the same team still finished I think seventh or eighth so um the infrastructure within clubs is is very very limited um there is no understanding of what makes a club I don't think that Licensing laws in this country make it very difficult for things like replica shirt sales because 
the shirts, maybe Nike, Adidas, Umbro, whoever. But then you go outside the stadium and all the fakes are lined up against the wall and people are paying, you know, 20,000 for a replica shirt instead of purchasing the original in the club shop. So things like that, financing and, and how to bring finance in the club and, and make it become a viable business. Just people don't understand how to do it. It's, it's a difficult situation given that there's not a huge amount of money within the actual support that come to the games. Um, some clubs that bring in 40,000, 50,000 to home games obviously will get gate receipts from that. But at the same time, they are hiring 40,000, 50,000 seater stadiums in order to, uh, to allow that amount of, of supporters to come. So there's a huge big rental fee on big stadiums. So making money in football in this country is not an easy task and, and making a club self-sustaining is, is virtually impossible. I think 2018, we were the only team in the league to actually own their own stadium. When we converted a, a police stadium, which was little more than a running track and a grandstand, into a, a, our home stadium, which holds, I think, 5,000 at a maximum. And we were the only team that, that owned their own stadium. And even then, you know, only 5,000 fans coming in, paying a small amount of money. The, in terms of that side, that the business side of the club is just non-existent. Um, the media side of the club is growing every day. I think people are starting to switch on to how they can use social media and, and an online presence to get more guys in to watch and to, uh, to tell more about what the club's, what the club's doing and, and to paint pictures that fans want to see and interact with the club on a daily basis. That's growing. Uh, I'm sure you'd know more about that than I would, Richard, given what you were out here in Indonesia doing. But in terms of, in terms of the actual team itself and the support for the team itself, i.e. the staff, guys like uh, physiotherapists, match analysis, non-existent, non-existent. That really comes from the coach himself if he's prepared to do that. Um, there are very few coaches in the league, I think, that even look at videos of previous clubs you know, or previous teams and how they play and prepare with video analysis. Uh, it's, it's just not a done thing, you know. It's not necessarily the fact they can't afford it. It's more the fact that coaches here are, are either comfortable or not prepared to push or simply don't know about all of the tools they have available to them. And even if they do know, guys like myself would be asking the boss, listen, we need to get some, uh, some GPS tracking vests because it's really going to help with me working out how fit the players are and, and you know, tracking them over, over the season. Well, why do we want to do that? Can't you do that? yes boss but, but this makes it very simple and then there's evidence on who's injured who's not involved there's very much a need for, for being able to educate up to bosses in order to get the tools of the trade that are, are currently lacking so I need another masseuse I need someone who can watch games and talk to me from the from the stand and tell me what's happening I, I need a match analysis I need cameras I need a GoPro I need blah 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 blah, blah. these are all things that, that really aren't in place in most clubs in this country that, that really come from the coach himself when he comes in and goes okay well we're going to need to reshape some things here um there's never a worry about money there is always money but it's that education it's, it's getting the the owner of the club to understand this is why we need these things you need to pay out you need to go get it so educating up as much as educating your players is, is crucial in a head coach role in this position because that lack of infrastructure don't you can't rely on the club to do it themselves how did the role at the national team come about? Because it was two years at Barankara and then you went to the PSSI, approached you and uh, you got the national team job, right? Yeah. Um, 
Well, the previous Spanish coach, he'd been brought in to, to really prepare the under-23 team for the Asian Games. And uh, there was a good crop of young players coming through at that point. Uh, there was an under-19 team that had been successful and he was picking some players from that group. And really everything for two years, senior team, under-23s, everything was geared around building that under-23 team for the Asian Games competition. And once that Asian Games competition was over, the PSSI really didn't, it felt like they didn't want to keep on Luis Miller, the previous coach, who'd, who'd done a pretty good job. You know, the, they, they performed well in Asian Games against some good opponents. Um, but everything was under 23 levels. So the senior team hadn't really been touched for two years. Some of the senior players weren't being used. And a lot of the talent in Indonesia was just kind of being represented in the league without going anywhere near representing a national team. And um, they approached me end of 2018 with a, a third place finish um, and uh, wanted me to take over from where Lewis Miller finished. And I had free reign to kind of create the senior team. The under-23s were, were a good side and were backed up by another good young side between that. But there's, for whatever reason, there's definitely a, a, a something lacking between good up-and-coming youth players, under-19, under-20, under-21, and then that step up into senior football. There's something not quite right there. There's a, there's a, a chink in the, in, the, in the chain, if you like. So going into the senior team, I, over a short term, I, 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 you know, I know what, what Southeast Asian football is about. I need to get some wins on the board, not only for the fans, but also my bosses. They need to see that the team under me can win games. They didn't, they didn't mind losing to better opposition, but I need to get some wins in the short term. That cements you in, gets your feet under the table and gives you a little bit more power. So I couldn't just rely on good young under 21s, 22s to go up against full senior national teams. It's never been done before. It was Asian Games was an under 23 tournament. So these guys were very, very untested at that level. So we had to really think about using a lot of the senior players that have been bypassed over the, the couple of years. So we, we looked to build a, a team that had a good balance between youth and experience. We needed those experienced players to help those young players come through, especially at senior national team level. I mean, that's, a, that's elite. There's no higher level than that. Um, and I was pushing to take the team abroad. We, we needed to do things differently. We needed to take Indonesia hadn't played more than two uh, away games in a season in more than five years. Um, they'd never been, they hadn't been to the Middle East in over six years. And yet we were going into World Cup qualification, which is Asia-wide, and we weren't very good away from home. We'd never been away from home effectively over the last five years. So well, I was pushing to take them abroad. I was pushing to take, we ended up going to Australia on a training camp, did very well. Then we played Myanmar away, first game of the season, and, um, and beat them 2-0. And uh, I became the first foreign coach to win his, his first, his debut game. And uh, more importantly, it was an away game. So it started off really well. That then kind of gave me a little bit more power within the position to say, listen, if we can do this, we'd get better. If we can have this, we could do better. If we could bring in GPS vests, if we could have a match analysis, if I can have a camera crew. And it was all going very well. It was all going really well. You know, bosses were, were fairly happy with how things were progressing. We had a plan. The, the job was to really develop the team to be contenders for the 2020 Suzuki Cup, which would be November, December of this year. So it was a two-year deal, two-year development plan, you know, with, with targets along the way to make sure we were there or thereabouts come December 2020. Um, and then the World Cup draw hit us, and, and it was very difficult from then on. There were two games against Malaysia, weren't there? Uh, that didn't yeah. go your way, and... 
I mean that that's the those are the big games, right? <laughs> those were the ones that uh, it's such yeah. a big rivalry. It's so intense because the focus is is you know they say the in, uh, is it the Australian cricket team, the ca- captain of the Australian cricket team. Apart from the prime minister, he's the most important person in the country. Is that kind of the way it works a little bit in Indonesia? It certainly feels that way. Yeah, yeah, without doubt, without doubt. I, I didn't, you know, I was I was the head coach of a club team that had just won the league. I get noticed every now and again out in public, you know, not as much in Jakarta because most people are that interested in finance, business, blah, 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 blah. Once you go into the smaller cities, you get noticed. But all of a sudden I was national team head coach and it, it went from some people noticing to every single person in the restaurant turning around and seeing you sit down at dinner with your wife. Um, it, you are very much in the public eye taking on a role like that. And to start with, there was a lot of support, a lot of good messages, a lot of, of good intention, especially for the start we made against Myanmar. And and we tried some new things. You know, we played with three at the back, which is something that they've not seen before. And I watched a lot of Southeast Asian teams and, and they've utilized this very well because they don't really have dominant center backs who can go man on man against, you know, big Asian strikers. So we, we tried something different and it really worked quite well for us. And it looked like that was going to, see us through and that would be something we could work on and develop over the space of the two years. But but when that World Cup draw was made, um that that whole development plan of being judged against Southeast Asian countries at the end of twenty twenty was then moved forward sixteen months. And that World Cup draw then became a mini Suzuki Cup after me being in the job six months. So I knew full well when that draw came out, I was in Malaysia at the time watching the draw and, you know, they pull out Vietnam. I thought, oh, no. And then they pull out Malaysia and, oh, come on. And then Thailand comes out as well. And everyone's laughing. And I'm probably the only one in the room scratching my head knowing full well that this is probably going to cost me the job. And I said so 10 minutes after the draw to my wife. And, you know, I think if you're a coach who understands the job you're in, you know full well when, ah, oh, it's not a good draw. That's really going to make it difficult. And the crux of it was we just weren't ready for those type of games. We weren't ready to go up against Malaysia, which is all out war. I mean, it really is. The, 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 the feeling in the stadium was electric, but hostile. Um, and it, it, you had that feeling that it, a, one bad tackle and there'd be a pitch invasion and people get hurt. It was, it was palpable. You could, you could sense it when you came out for the, for the warm up. Um, 80,000 fans. Probably a good two, three, four thousand Malaysians segmented into a tiny little pie slice of the of the stadium, uh, and surrounded by the best part of eighty thousand Indonesian fans, you know, rabid at the mouth to get at them. It was it was an incredibly hostile environment, and um, the way the game went, it, it we'd have been better off getting beat two 0 because then the fans would have just gone home when we got beat. But we looked the better team. It looked like we were going to win it, and they pipped us right at the end, which. You know, as you know, it stirs emotions, it stirs frustration, anger, all these things come out and it's spilled over and, and cause riots after the game. But this is the job. This is what you take on board when you're working in this part of the world. You know, you put your name on the contract knowing that if things go bad, they go bad in a big sense. And there's the risk that, that people can get hurt because of it. So it's no surprise um, that, that things didn't turn out well. But I think a better draw would have helped us. Um, but... I think the writing was on the wall when those teams came out. Certainly for my position anyway, I knew that we weren't ready to be judged after six or seven months. 
Um, but I knew that was going to happen as soon as that draw came out and we go into those games. Well, I went into those games knowing that so we might not quite be ready for this. And, and there was times when I was accused of being you know, not, not particularly optimistic in, in how I approached the games and spoke to other club managers. Um, I would call it being realistic, but that's not really what people want to hear. And it's not certainly what a management group of the Federation wants to hear. They were calling them must-win games. And, and I, you know, I always preserved an argument that why are they must-win? We're not in a position to say these are must-win. 2020 Suzuki Cup, okay, must-win. But not now. Not not based on six months of work. That's it's just it's just not right. You brought up a couple of cultural things, which I think are really important, and things that I found in Indonesia, is you, know, you get a bad draw, and you know you've had a good time as a club manager, a good reputation as a club manager, but you get a bad draw, and you think, oh, that's me sat then, because you know that the attitude is going to be, and this is not just Indonesia, it's wider, and this is not just in the national team, it's club teams as well, it's everywhere, it's short-termist, and look, it's short-termist in the championship in England, there's only, what, a a year or so is the average tenure for a manager. So it's it's not being overly critical of Indonesia, but there is a short-termist culture and the fans overreact as well. I love the fans. They've been really good to me. I've had a great time in Indonesia. I love Indonesian football. But those are two things that, in my opinion, yeah, there's corruption issues as well, which, which are sort of wider. But there's three things. But let's talk about the, the two, the short-termism and the fans. That it, it's, a, it's a desire to run a bit too too fast a bit too early from what i can see yeah it really is and there's a you know pulling out malaysia for our first game at home that is is possibly the worst game in the whole of asia to come out for when you're you're rebuilding a team you know we want even if we played uae at home or away in the first game and, and got beat five or six at least there's, there's lessons to be learned from that and the expectation of going and beating uae national team would be very low. So there'd be an understanding that so long as you performed well and you could see some things that were, oh, that was it. there was an interesting period of the game there where we looked quite good. Um, that would be a, a positive. You'd be able to take that on through into your games to come. But when it's Malaysia, you know, everything goes out the window. It, it doesn't matter how you play. It doesn't matter how you get the goals. We just have to win this game. It's Malaysia. It's national pride. And I hate derby games for that reason. And, and this goes back all the way to when I was a player. I, when I was in the Philippines, everything is very uh, personal. Culturally, it's very personal. How you criticize people, just in conversation. If you're, if you're the boss of someone and you're dealing with someone who's done a really bad job, you need to be careful how you, how you criticize someone because they will take it personally. And that will then have a ripple effect further down the line. It's fairly similar in football. In that football is personal to an awful lot of people in this country. and They don't really have a lot else. They're not particularly wealthy. They don't particularly have great jobs. You'll have a lot of Gojek drivers and, and food sellers who pay the 10000 20000 30000 and come in and support and, and live and breathe every pass, every header. I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing because when it's good, that support is phenomenal. You know, I, I've been in a stadium with, against 90,000 90, Indonesian fans with the Philippines national team. And it was unforgettable. We lost that game. But the, the atmosphere was just, it gives me goosebumps talking about it. it. It was probably one of the highlights of my career and we lost the game. But to then have it behind you is a very different sense. Um, it's, a, it's a great pressure. It's a great honor, you know, to represent that many people. And, and 
to be head coach of the most populous football country on earth is an incredible feeling, knowing that you have so much support and so much passion behind you. But it really is on a knife edge. And if they don't like the way things are going, they're more than happy to let you know that halfway through the game, they'll start booing and shouting at players and you know they're berating a, a national team legend playing in goal, saying that he's passed it and needs to be out. And, and these days, obviously, social media gives everybody a platform. So it's, it's a difficult one to take. Um, and as much as you enjoy the plaudits and the support when things are going well, like I say, putting my name on the contract, I knew full well that that would be the case should things not go well. And going back to Malaysia, when you see Malaysia drawn out, you just think, oh, no, God, first game. That's, that could really, really hurt us. And you start thinking about strategies and you start thinking about, okay, well, if things don't go well, it's not being, it's not being pessimistic. It's not being you know, defeatist. It's simply saying that you're the coach, you understand what your players are capable of and you understand the context of what that game means. Now, if that game doesn't go well, how do we recover and prepare for the next game? How do we get ourselves back up again? Really, really tough. Very, very difficult situation. And, and we played well for so, so, for such a long spell in that game, we looked like we were going to win. And then crucial, basic, elemental errors, maybe that we touched on before in, in players' upbringing, cost us cost us and sadly um they were predicted we we all discussed for the week leading up to that game where the dangers were and where they would come from and whether it was due to the huge amount of pressure on their shoulders whether it was due to the PSSI banging their hands on the table saying this is must win this is national pride we cannot lose to Malaysia whatever reason guys went to sleep and it and it cost us on the in in the very biggest way uh, and, and really cost me the job yeah, I was watching that in a coffee shop in Hertfordshire. I got a dodgy stream. <laughs> I got a dodgy stream and I was watching it. And I watched the last five. Was it? Yeah, because you, you let in two in the last five minutes. Was it, am I right in thinking that? We, no, it was, um, they equalised with about 25 minutes to go. And then with about 10 minutes to go, it's 2-2. Two, two. A group of fans escaped the police and got into Malaysian fans and it kicked off. There was flares going and the game was stopped for about 12 minutes in total. Um, and some of the players went over to try and calm things. I mean, you've got 80,000 people going mental at the time. You've got players going over trying to calm things down and listen, settle, settle, settle. We've got to stop this, you know, trying to shout. Malaysian fans, Malaysian players were, were angry that the game had been stopped. The coach is shouting across at me like I'm supposed to do something. Um, it's just chaos. It's just absolute chaos. And then we go back onto the pitch and by the admission of some of the players, you know, I asked them after the game, what, what happened there? They, they were focused. They, were, they, they had one eye on what the crowd were doing. And, and absolutely the wrong thing to do. But they were so busy in trying to get the game finished and trying to stop guys getting on the pitch and Indonesia getting another ban and being kicked out of World Cups and blah, blah, blah. They... They said that they weren't 100% focused in the last 10 minutes of the game and, and see the game out. And Obviously, Malaysia were and managed to find that winner. And, and it, was a, it was a sore one to take. It was a tough one to take. But, you know, um, one of those things, unfortunately. So, you know, if you work in Southeast Asian football, that there's a good chance whatever job you get is going to be relatively short term. You're going to have to move countries. How does Mrs. McMenemy cope with life? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I don't say this lightly. I am married to one of the most supportive, most 
positive women I think I've ever met. And I'm, I'm very lucky that that is the case because many people have said to us the, the roller coaster that we've been through over the last 10 years, you know, I've been, I've been sat twice in Indonesia. I've also won the league in Indonesia and I've been the national team head coach in Indonesia. So it's, it's ups and downs. And, you know, you try not to get a, a good friend of me said, a, a good friend of mine said to me, you know, you try not to get too high in the highs and you try not to let the lows break you. Um, it's easily done. It, it's, it's a, it's a difficult mindset and it's something that you have to create strategies in order to deal with those low times or those time, those, those trying times within jobs. You know, I come home from that Malaysia game and I, I sleep at home that night and I know what's going on around me. I know that the whole city or the whole country is up in arms that we've just lost to Malaysia. I know that people are calling for my head, but I have to find a way of making sure that I can sleep so that I've got a clear head to go to work the next day. I've got to be positive about how that, how I then implement a plan to, to get us back on track. Um, and my wife and my family are a massive part of that. And, and they know that and they, they understand the part they play. Certainly now my wife does after 10 years of experience, she knows she needs to give me an hour once I get home from a game. If we've lost, um, asking me about how it went, isn't going to help. So she, she understands and she's very now very, very good at the role she plays in my coping mechanism. Um, and I think that if you don't have that, if you don't understand that, and again, it's something that's, that's not taught in a qualification. It's not taught in your pro license when you're dealing, you know, when you're at a difficult club and things are going badly, how do you deal with things? Just saying, well, stay positive, put a smile on your face. That doesn't work when you've got 247 million people attacking you on social media. And you have to find ways of coping it. And through practical experience, you know, I know full well that if I've got a, a house which is quite secluded, if I've got my own space that I can lock the door and not talk football, and my wife understands that, and now I've got a little son who just takes my mind off it as soon as I come home, that is as crucial as having a decent centre-back in your own mind space, you know, in your own well-being. To know that you've got a good goalkeeper who's going to help you out through the season is just as important as knowing that I've got a place I can come to if things get bad. What's the worst that can happen? I go home and I sleep with my family and the next morning I wake up to see, you know, to a new day. Um, very, very easy to let this game in this part of the world ruin you both mentally and physically. And, and there are very few coaches that I've come across, especially Western coaches, even British coaches that have been in this part of the world for a long time who have marriages that have survived that journey. You know, three or four of them that I know are on their second, third, fourth wife. Um, it's something I discuss a lot with with uh, Chris Great, which from the Philippines, who's assistant coach of the Philippines, and you know was one of my players back in the day. We have long discussions about family life and how we how we balance the two, and a, and a job that's incredibly stressful and is a real pull on you mentally and physically. To then how you balance your your home life in relation to that and. Um, I don't think there are any strict answers. I don't think it's it's something that you can read a book and learn how to do it. You just simply have to live through it and work out what works for you and what doesn't. Um, but it's it's so so crucial. I can't I can't make a a more important point about you know any new coaches coming to this part of the world how important that is if you're going to take on big roles. Is success in Southeast Asia transferable? Is it okay? You've you've been successful there, but you've been successful there. 
Right. You know, was there interest in you when you became Richard? Sorry. It's a good question. It's a yeah. good question, that one. Um, until I have success in another part of the world, then really I don't really know the full answer to that. I think there is certainly a credibility issue because if you talk to football people at home and you just said, well, I won the Indonesian league and then I was national team head coach, they have absolutely no understanding of what that entails. What does your day-to-day mean? How many people are you playing in front of? What standard is your team at? Who are you playing against? What are you teaching these players? If you said you work in Germany, people are like, oh, wow, you worked in Germany. What, even in the second? Yeah, I was, a, I was an assistant coach in the second division. Oh, right. They get a good understanding of what that means. You may not be the one that was making the decisions, but you did a lot of the technical stuff. You probably worked with a guy who knew what he was talking about. That might open more doors than being a national team head coach from Southeast Asia because it's based on the understanding of that person who's making a judgment about you. And if they don't know enough, and let's be honest, who knows a lot about Indonesian football? Um, the fact that I've had to, my last, my last home game as a head coach was in front of 85,000 on a live TV stream to 200 million people, probably double that with other countries watching as well from, from Malaysia. Um, these numbers don't mean anything to people. They can't get their head around the size of the game in this part of the world. It is comfortably the number one priority in a good 50% of, of the, the population of the country. They are football mad here. And some of the things you go through as a head coach in this part of the world, you wouldn't even contemplate. You touched earlier on match fixing something that you have to deal with, something that you have to get your head around. Um, you can't just put, you know, oh, batch fixing, it happens. No, I can't work there. And you suddenly you're out of a job. And that means now you have to move your whole family back home. And, and because you've spoken out about it publicly, now no one else touches you. No one wants to come near you. No other leagues want to deal with you. Um, is it transferable? I would say, yes, it is. But then... It's only transferable if someone gives you the opportunity to do that job. And that's, that's the main problem from my side. I've worked, I've handled budgets of over a million dollars. I've signed players from the Premier League. I've, I've built teams to play against players from the Premier League. I've worked in front of, of, of um, live audiences from 1,000 right up to 90,000 in FIFA tournaments. Um, but how does that transfer to getting a job back in Europe how does that allow a, a league one team to look at your CV and go hey this is the guy we can utilize it's it's a constant problem I think for people working in this part of the world um, and I don't really have an answer other than coming up with creative ways to 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 show yourself off and I think podcasts like these certainly help people understanding some of the the day-to-days that you have to go through that that might lend themselves to a job on another in another part of the world. Um, it, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I would say, yes, it is transferable because I'm confident in the abilities I have, where I've worked, what I've done, in that I'm able to go into a setting, create a team, build a team, make them strong, manage high-level individuals as well as local young players within the same group, um, handle big budgets, sign big players, deal with egos, deal with bad refereeing while all of the time maintaining um, a very high level of professionalism that I set myself. I think that is transferable to any 
any league in the world. But it's down to whether that person is going to give you the opportunity and they can see enough in your CV to think that you do have the credentials. And then there's the transfer, transferability of Indonesian players because this is, as you've said, the most populous country in the world in which football is the number one sport. 270 million population. And yet the yeah. standard is not what you would expect. Um, mm. The economy is also, in the next 10 to 15 years, going to expand in terms of all the predictions. And it could be number four, five, six in the world in terms of global economy. It's a, it's a, uh, a country with, obviously, a lot of people. It's very... It, it, it's, it's quite technologically advanced. Obviously, there's a difference between the cities and the rural areas, lots of islands, lots of issues, blah, blah, blah. But this is a country on the up if they get it right. But in terms of transferring talent out of the country and making them successful in, say, European leagues, it hasn't worked yet. And there's mm. and people, there must be a massive advantage to doing this for any any European club. Yes. Why has it not happened yeah. yet? Um, I think that could be a podcast all of its own, if I'm honest, Richard. We could be here all day talking about that, yeah, much like a lot yeah. of things that happen in Indonesia. Well, if you want to but, come uh, up, we, we could do another a version of, it, of, of Football Indonesia. If you go and find that podcast, I did loads with people asking this very topic. And yeah, it is uh, another one on its own, but it's, a short version, Ladybird version. <laughs> I think in terms of the talent, the talent alone, players are capable. I think that was proved when Evan Dimas went, he trialled with uh, Espanyol for, for two months and they liked him. They were happy to keep him. He was homesick. He didn't want to stay there. He needed to be back home. He missed his family, missed his food. We mentioned earlier about the upbringing of players and how they learn the game. They learn the game through playing 11v11 against other local players. They don't get coached the basics. They don't get coached the fundamentals. And when if you, if you imagine going to school and, and missing out, you know, staying at home until you were 11, until you start going to school at 11, everything you've missed out on from the age of whenever you start, four or five years on, counting, spelling, adding, those, those fundamentals to your education are missing. It's the same in football. There is no structured pathway for players in this country. They get to 15, 16, 17. They're good players. They stand out. Wow, he's a good player. Let's stick him in. Oh, he's what is it? Tactically, he's all over the place, but he's one of the most technical players I've seen. He's just picked the ball up and dribbled round eleven players and the referee and scored. But now ask him to play fullback against a good other, you know, opponent and show tactical awareness doesn't have a clue. In terms of players, that's what you're up against: this lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding of the game that you see in in kids in the UK from 12, 13, 14 years up. Very educated, very knowledgeable. Um, be it through champ manager FIFA or actually being on the field people know about the technical and tactical side of the game at home here it's just not present and you, you find that in, in even professional players at the highest level once they get up into the league there is also the issue that Indonesian passport is not a good passport to travel on it requires visas it requires certain elements in order for players to stay in certain countries and there's a player currently with one of the Polish top teams in Poland who's playing regularly for the reserves. He's had a couple of first-team games. Uh, Eggy is about, I think, 20 now, 19, 20. He's a good player and a talented player and is probably going to be a, you know, a, a future national team player for a long time. But he's probably the only one out there flying the flag right now. Um, and what was interesting was... nuts. So, well, in Poland, they go nuts. Oh, he, 
he's he's on another level of famous. I mean, he's he's the David Beckham of Indonesia right now. He, he's you mention his name and you know uh, people start having palpitations in the street. It's and he's a seventeen-year-old winger in a, a yeah. Polish top-flight reserve team, and yet he is a national star. That's that's who that's who has currently yeah, who has never ever played a senior Indonesian game at any level. He's never played a senior Indonesian game. Never played against men. He's always played against young players. The only senior games he's ever played, you know, 90 minutes are against Polish players where he's come on uh, or played in a reserve team game. He came on, in, I remember a national team game. He was 17, 18 at the time. Um, he came on against Iceland. Iceland, half decent European team these days. Played a friendly here. I think Indonesia were losing four or five at the time. The crowd were chanting, Ergi, Ergi. This kid had come on. He wasn't in Poland at the time. He was a youth team player. He'd never played a senior game, yet he came on for his senior team debut. And the pressure on him to change the game against Iceland, you know, they were disappointed with his performance because he came out, he's a 17-year-old kid. But because he's done well, because of the expectation, because of social media, because of, the, of, of how he looks on TV and youth team games, the way he plays, there's this expectation on his shoulders. Evan Dimas, you mentioned before, is probably the most talented player over the last three or four years in this country. Um, and has regularly asked me to help him move abroad. And the one time he gets an opportunity, he gets an offer from Selangor of Malaysia. Now, all right, he's only moving, you know, a couple of, you know, a thousand kilometers to his, to his neighboring country. But to be an Indonesian player playing outside of Indonesia is a big deal. And he was keen for the opportunity and it was a great contract for him. It's more money he's ever earned before. He's going to get experiences that other Indonesian players haven't had. And his signing was blocked. And of all people, was blocked by the president of the PSSI. The president of the federation said that in the press, he was a traitor. He was going for the money. He was a dog. He was a traitor to Indonesia. Now, this kid has played for an Indonesian national team since he was 15. He's now 23, 24, and got a great move to a Malaysian Super League side. And here's the president of the federation telling him that he's a traitor and a dog for moving to Malaysia. A, because it was Malaysia. But B, he was turning around and saying, well, why can't he be good in, in Indonesia? Why does he have to move to another country? Now, when you have that coming from the federation, you can imagine what these players are trying to battle against to try and get out of the country. You can see why there's no real want for them to try themselves in another country. And there's a cultural aspect to that as well. A while ago, we took some 16-year-olds to one side. We did some, some uh, a psychological workshop with them. And um, we asked them to do, we gave them a stack of magazines and we asked them to cut things out and stick down on a, on a big piece of cardboard that identified things that they wanted football to give them. They're 16 years old. They're probably going to end up in the pro game in the league somewhere. What did you want football to do for you? Where do you see yourself going? And the number one across the board, number one, priority for every single player in the room look after family now there's a serious amount of money in indonesian football and when that 17 year old 18 year old who's been good in the youth teams then signs for a big club he signs for person and he signs his first deal for three thousand four thousand dollars a month to him is that's jackpot he's he's achieved everything he's ever wanted to achieve in his very first contract so such is the level of money here 
that he signed that contract. He then looks after not only his family, but probably half his village in what he can do with that money. That then the motivation to become better, the motivation to kick on, to then be the best player in the country and to play outside and be the first player to play in Europe. It's just not there. Culturally, it's not there. And it's this inbuilt, you know, uh, priorities that it's family first. It's number one, it's family. And even when they do get a chance to move away, they're saying they're homesick and they want to move home because they miss their family. It's a, it's a cultural aspect that makes motivation very, very difficult. There's no question they have the ability to do it. They're some of the most technical players I've seen in Southeast Asia in this country. But there is no motivation, A, to get better, B, to move abroad, and C, to do anything outside of their comfort zone. It's a very, very difficult environment to work in. Yeah, I saw an aspect of that in the US, actually, when I worked in the US, because players playing abroad, do they need to develop abroad? Jürgen Klinsmann wanted players, who was a national team um, head coach for a period of time, he wanted players who played in Europe, and yet they were bringing players back and play, paying them a lot of money, Michael Bradley, Dempsey, etc. It's kind of a similar thing. Um, so, just give me a couple of things that you, that you would recommend now that would improve Indonesian football in the sort of 10 to 20 year span you know because and, and this is kind of the things that they that in my opinion they struggle to do a long-term planning issues that, that would, would would have a an effect over over a longer period of time it's 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 the the long-term planning long-term execution looking far ahead that is a weakness in my opinion so what what could you recommend just a couple of things to put in place I think given the structure that is there now, they would need to identify, maybe scout and identify groups at every age group from maybe under 12 upwards. And once they get to under 15, under 16, um, create an international schedule for them, enter tournaments, fly these kids around the world, get them used to the, the difficulties that professional footballers face. It's all right just saying, well, they need to be more educated, but there isn't anyone in the country who's able to do that. So if they need to bring in outsiders to coach these teams, you know, put emphasis on having a really good, well-paid foreign coach under 12, under 14, under 16, under 18, all the way up. I found it very interesting, and I asked the question to the technical director of Vietnam, who are probably the strongest team in Southeast Asia right now. How have you managed to make the national team this much better when the domestic league is not great. Indonesian domestic league is comfortably better than Vietnamese domestic league. So how is your national team progressing so much when your domestic league is so bad? Um, now, he, he made some very interesting points. He said that the way that they were able to develop their players was to kind of insulate them from the league. He didn't allow any of their younger players to play in the league. They scouted this group of players and they created an international schedule where they trained around the world. They went to Japan for a tournament. They went and did a training camp in Australia. They went over to Europe and played some Spanish teams. And, and they did that for two or three years. And they created this schedule where they didn't have to enter the league. Players weren't trying to get into local teams. And they had the agreement from the league that no local teams would be trying to sign these players. They were specifically designed to promote their national team to a higher level. So they identified these kids early, trained them hard with foreign coaches, um, to a higher level than had been in the past. When we played them in Bali and lost 3-1, there were eight players from that original group of 19, 20-year-olds who featured in that game, three of which are now uh, two playing in Japan, one playing in Europe. 
if you're going to allow these guys to play domestically, the standard of the domestic league is going to drag them down and drain them of all that potential that they showed. They've got to be pushed. They've got to be taken to other parts of the world in order to gain that experience to then almost rise above Indonesian football and, and, and grab Indonesian football, especially the senior national team, and, and make that team play to their level instead of playing to the level of the Indonesian league. Because the Indonesian league has issues all over the place. Um, it's a million-dollar question, and there, and there are so many cultural elements to that. There is ego involved. There is, there is a, a two fingers up to the rest of the world sometimes. That why would we do it that way? When we're Indonesia, we do it this way. Um, I could talk about the culture of, of, of that issue, of, of, that, of those problems so many times and, and so many things that have come up where I'm fighting against a cultural issue, which means I know I'm going to lose. But it's very difficult trying to pinpoint exactly how this country can go forward and go higher without utilizing knowledge from outside and without taking players outside and preparing them for a higher level of football, not just the highest level of football in Indonesia. Two things out of that. A, I think that's a what a great Netflix show that would be. <laughs> From my content head, with my content head on, I would be running a YouTube channel almost daily about that particular group of players, wherever they were, and then I'd be pitching in a Netflix show where we're where we're doing ten episodes a year. That's with with my content head on. So Simon, if you want to pitch that, I can back it up, and maybe we get a content <laughs> better paid for. But secondly. <laughs> Secondly, that's just the way I think. <laughs> Secondly, you've always got this. I mean, you've got it in England with Premier League, Premier League, strength of the Premier League versus national team. And can we have both? That discussion was there maybe five to ten years ago. And then Germany came and showed us that you could have both. But that, that was a prominent di- discussion that how difficult it is to maintain excellence over the long term with your national team and have a strong league. Because if you've got a strong, strong league, you've got foreign involvement, and that's yeah. has the money in the Premier League and the influx of uh, so many quality foreign players. Has it been a benefit to the England team because it's brought the standard up, or has it impinged it because it's blocked routes to to get experience? You can argue it both ways. Yeah. I just look at the England team. And I think we've not not done enough with the talent that we've had over the last twenty or thirty years. But that issue is everywhere, isn't it? Everywhere. It is, and and I think. It, 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 is, it is a similar issue. I think it's slightly different in certain parts of Southeast Asia. For example, the Philippines, can, you can have a dual passport. So in the Philippines, you can hold two passports, in which case they go scouting for players who are already playing in European leagues that have a Filipino mother, father or grandparent and offer them a Filipino passport, and in which case they drag them back to the Philippines for national team games. Now you've got a team of Europeans playing for the, for, for the Philippines national team. And all of a sudden, their results start going through the roof and they're knocking off teams like China and North Korea. Um, A totally viable um, tactic, so long as that is backed up, when that success happens, so long as that is backed up by investment in the grassroots game, which then allow all these players, you know, opportunities to play against higher level rather than just playing your Laos, your Cambodias and your your Indonesians. I I was Um, going to say that's potentially short-termist. Potentially. Short-termist? So long as it's backed up with a yeah, long-term yeah. you know, uh, a structure of grassroots and allowing good young college players to be in amongst these European players who've got all the experience. I mean, the lad playing for Philippines right now, Schrocki, Stefan Schrock played in Bundesliga, the top league against Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund. Now he's playing in the Philippines. Now, the level of experience and knowledge that that guy has in his head, surely that's going to rub off on players around him 
when he's training with them. So, so long as there is a structure there, you know, there is thought that goes into it rather than just our national team's going to win, our national team's going to win, our national team's going to win. Then they can back it up with that next conveyor belt of the next young players hungry to get to it. In Indonesia, they offer passports to players. Players who have been here a certain amount of time can be naturalized. But unlike the Philippines, they have to give up their original passport. So right now, um, star center midfielder for procedure, Mark Clock, is probably going to get a passport. Now, he's only 25, 26 years old. Good prospect, will help players around it. But when there are so many forwards in the league that are all foreign, Indonesia struggles for a striker. There are very, very few decent strikers who can live up to or play up against a senior national team centre-back outside of Southeast Asia. I mean, we, we get dominated by uh, physicality because if we play local guys up against, they don't have the experience to deal with them. And normally, tactically now, a lot of teams are playing like a 4-3-3 or a, or a lone striker up top. That lone striker is always foreign. There is no thought process given to development that would supersede winning in the league or even paying exorbitant amounts of money for an expensive team. There is no, much like we talk about in the UK, you know, where these young English players, where are they getting their opportunities? At the minute, they're all heading out to Germany and doing really well and, and you know, sticking two fingers up at Premier League teams. So it's a different, the, the, the idea is the same, the, the, the problem is, is the same. It's just in a very different context, if you like. It's more kind of, we want a foreign striker scoring the goals as opposed to giving chances to, to young Indonesian players. Of that, I mentioned earlier, that good under-19, under-23 team, very few of those players get minutes in the league because it's, it's all senior players and foreign players. Centre-back, centre-midfielder, attacking midfielder, striker, all foreign. So then when it comes to national team, problems. Problems. They don't, don't have dominant centre-backs able to hold themselves against higher opposition because they've never been outside the country. They don't play in other, in other countries at all. They just play within the league. They play up against sometimes foreign strikers, sometimes local strikers, but they struggle in certain positions. Um, it's a problem and, it, and it, it will continue to be an issue until they, they are all prepared to sit down around a table and the league, the federation and all the clubs are on the same page. Until that happens and they're all motivated by, motivated by the same thing, um, they get the, they're all going to go and want to go off in different directions. Final couple. Um, yeah. Where uh, the first one, the two-part question: Where's the strength in Southeast Asia at the moment, and what would a World Cup in that region? Obviously, we've seen one in Japan, but what would a World Cup in Southeast Asia do for the region as a whole? And where's the strength in it? Wow. Um... The strength at the moment, I mean, the, the, the guys that are really leading the way right now are Vietnam. They are, they're a little powerhouse and they, you know, they're not one of the biggest countries in Southeast Asia, but they seem to have got everybody pushing in the right direction to the point where they have a host of good young 20 something players, you know, pushing into that senior first team and winning and playing a, a, a difficult shape. You know, Vietnamese players always, always tough, very, Mentally tough, physically tough, not particularly big, um, just real strong competitors and, and make it very difficult when they go up against the likes of Australia and, and Middle Eastern teams and, and often come out the winner. Um, they are really showing how it should be done. Thailand have always been a force in this part of the world. They've always been a, a classy outfit, the way they play football. Um, they have a lot of players playing in Japan. 
their centre midfielder who seems to be in, who have been around for the last ten years, but he's still only what twenty four, twenty five. Chantip, I mean this 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 kid, he plays like Lionel Messi. He moves like Lionel Messi. He's only five foot one, if that. Um, he's a hell of a player, and they just build a team around him. But they have lots of good, talented young players coming through as well. Um, the other teams kind of can have their day, but really these are the two teams that lead the way. And, and if, if, for example, a World Cup was to be awarded in this part of the world, and people don't understand the fanaticism there is within these countries. I, I, I'm a, arguably, Indonesia leads the way mm. because it's it, sheerly based on size. You know, the things I've seen at Indonesian games over the last eight years that I've been involved with Indonesian football on and off. You know, I, 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 it's not uh, an over-exaggeration to say I could write a book on some of the stories. Being held on the pitch under armed guard in the centre circle where there's a riot going off. I've had referees call the club before a game saying that they want this much money for three points. I've had the owners of a club telling me as I'm walking off the pitch that I was never going to win that game and and in one way or another, they paid for it. Um, it, it endless, endless. Is the corruption stories. that bad? Is the corruption really that obvious? <laughs> it's a difficult one, Richard. It's, it's yeah. a really difficult one. It's it's a, it's a it's an issue, um, and it's a difficult one to kind of put your finger on because there will always be no proof. There is always no proof that it ever happened. But if you're within the league. You see certain patterns happening. You see certain individuals. You see certain referees. You see certain decisions. You hear people speak. You catch people sometimes trying to get into hotels where players are staying, selling videos, DVDs, perfumes. Um, when I'm being told by players, do not let this guy anywhere near our players. Um, there, there are so many things I could point at where I think maybe, maybe that was something. Maybe that was something. And I'll always have my suspicions. But there is never a case where I can categorically say, yes, 100% that happened. The, the, the time when the referee phoned us, the owner of the club called me a couple of hours before the game, or the night before the game, and he said to me, tomorrow we're playing a, an important game. The referee's just called me. The three points are going to cost us $4,000. And I said to him, listen, if you are going to pay that referee, then I want you to pay out the rest of my contract because I can't, if you're taking me out of the mix, why am I coaching the team if someone's going to decide who wins? What am I doing every week? Why am I getting out of bed? What's the, pro what's the point of me being here? You're going to have to pay out my contract. And he said, well, oh yeah, no, 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 no. Of course, I was just letting you know that was, you know, that was the, right, okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. But what that does then is you go to the game, you stand on the sideline and during the game, you don't get a decision and you look, you don't blame the referee. You look across at the other bench and you have your suspicions about the other bench because you can guarantee the referee called the other team when we said no, or did we say no? You never really know. And you always, you're always playing under this cloud. Um, and you have suspicions that throughout the season, there are games that you just think to yourself, we weren't going to win that game for one reason or another. Why would we not get that penalty again and again and again and again? Why do we have that man sent off? That's normally a good referee. What happened there? You'll always have those suspicions. And sometimes it's sometimes it's a little bit more obvious than others. But I think everyone within the game in Indonesia knows that it's an issue. But it's the people outside of the game who try and prove it that just can't find anything. It's um 
it's a tough one. And it's something you have to be aware of working in this part of the world. Yeah. And just getting back, sorry, I interrupt you in the middle of the World Cup question, because, you know, 2034, a joint bid between Indonesia and Australia has been in the press. It's out mm. there as a possibility. Obviously, we're a, a long way from bidding, but you just think that would, obviously, it would be crazy in a positive way. It would properly take the world, the world game around the world uh, and really invigorate mm. Southeast Asian football um, and the Indonesian economy and everything, really. But the issues around staging a World Cup in Indonesia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm grey enough. I'm grey enough. Yeah, I know. I know. I wouldn't want to be in charge of that. That's for sure. That that wouldn't be a job I fancied, um, planning that and, and putting something together. There are so many cultural aspects to that um, from, you know, uh, refurbishing stadiums, refurbishing transport links, all of these things that are an issue in this part of the world. You know, the the, the monorail or the, the uh, overland train that was planned to be done ahead of the Asian Games that was 2018 is still not finished. And we're, you know, 2020 now, nearly halfway through 2020. That's a year and a half behind. And people have been investigated for where finances have gone when they were handed out for all this infrastructure. I mean, it, it just, the problem list would be endless. But if it were possible, there are stadiums that could certainly hold World Cup games in this country. I mean, the Bunkano is a fearsome environment that holds 85,000 and is a fantastic stadium. Um, has a real atmosphere to it when it's full. And it, it, it it's the, the it's difficult to put it into words, but a World Cup game held there would be would be phenomenal. It would really be something you wouldn't want to miss. And there are other stadiums around Indonesia maybe that would need some upgrading, but you know, we're not short of, of stadiums that hold fifty, sixty, seventy thousand. There are lots of them around. It's more the, the logistics of everything around football. It's 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 the hotels, it's the travel, it's it's how people will get to games. It's how supporters would be, would Indonesian fans who the national team would obviously qualify for the group stage, would they behave themselves? Would there be trouble? How would the police react? Are they too heavy handed? Is there enough? Uh, um, it would be a phenomenal achievement and it really would invigorate football in this part of the world and, and really hopefully would arguably show Indonesians what real football is. And I, I, I don't that mean that to be condescending of the of football here already, but to bring a tournament like that where they can watch real teams and how they play and, and how good they are live, to then go back to Indonesia, and it would really highlight some of the issues that are here. It would really push Indonesian football on. And I think that, that dealing with some of these teams and how they operate would really allow the federation and those supporting football and clubs to really kick on. It would be an incredible achievement, and it oh, it would it would be it, it would be sold out the minute it would be announced. It would be phenomenal. It really would. Um, the level of, I, I can't stress enough how passionate people are here for football. It's it's on a, a on a level unseen in Europe. Such a huge amount of the population are just fanatical about their team and about their national team. And you ask them to come, like I said earlier, on a a Wednesday afternoon at one o'clock in the afternoon, um, they'll fill a stadium, 50, 60, 70,000, whoever, however many you want. 
it would be an incredible achievement for the for the region and, and I, I would love to see it happen although i would not want the job of organizing it that's for sure <laughs> yeah I, the, the indonesian fans people don't realize the indonesian fans i remember i was in i went to a game in surabaya um which is obviously in java and then i went to fc borneo which is the north of kalimantan so you fly into balikpapa and you go through the the orangutans in the forest, three hours, et cetera, et cetera. And Persebaya were playing Borneo in the next game, and they'd arrived three days before the game to put their flags up. Yeah. <laughs> I'd been, it would have been hard enough for me, and I'd you know, got, had a car there and uh, done the flights and things like that. These are people that are, I don't know what they're earning, but it won't be much. And they've arrived three days before, and Bo- Borneo FC were thinking, why do you want your flags up now? They said, well, look, we're fans. We, they arrived three days before. And people don't understand. People in Europe are a little bit conceited about the level of support because of the history. And yet they don't understand that these people do not have... They don't have any money. It's a, it's a poor no. country. There's obviously a wide income disparity. There's a, a, a few rich people, but a lot of people have zero money and they are literally... I mean, another game... When uh, Persija versus Persib, uh, there was it was banned because of violence, and it was uh, it was moved to Solo uh, from uh, Jakarta, and I went. I as I say, I went down there, I flew down there, and I um I took some pictures. It was a monsoon, basically. Well, yeah. <laughs> in Indonesia, it might it might be a bit of a downpour, but I I call it a monsoon, and I tweeted a picture of these fans looking through a gap in the fence. And saying, look, you've come down on bikes and it's taken you eight hours. You haven't got a ticket and you sat outside in the rain. And one of them tweeted me back and said, no, we drove for 12 hours on our bikes and sat <laughs> outside and didn't have tickets and, and sat in the rain. It is entirely different grave. And I don't, I don't think Europeans will ever understand that until they see it. But there we are. No, it's, it's, there was a famous story a while ago when uh, Persipura, who are from Jayapura, which is very nearly New Guinea. You know, it's the middle of Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And from Jakarta, that's a... Two times that's about, three times uh, Yeah, five-hour five direct flight um, for one away game. It's a long, long way to go to play. And when you get down there, it's that far away that it's almost a different race of people. You know, they're physically... They're almost like uh, Australian Aborigines as opposed to your classic, smaller uh, Asian stereotypical players. Um, but when you go down there, it's so far and it's so difficult and it's so difficult to get a result. They hadn't lost at home in over five years. And the first time they looked, they lost. I remember this because I was asking about it not so long ago. Procedure went down there, were given a, a penalty in one one nil. Now, because it's so far, there is no traveling support. It's too far to go. You know, it's, it's two flights. It's uh, overnight stay in hotels. It's just too far to go. So there was 30,000 in the stadium. Persipura fans, 30,000 Persipura fans. Uh, Persipura lost 1-0. Now, the stadium is right next to the water. There's, there's no you know, jetty or anything, no port. It's just right next to the water. And it's a bit of a drive to get back to the hotel and the airport. It's in the opposite direction. But when the team won, Persija were held in the changing room for the best part of two hours. And the army were involved, moving boats to the side of nearest the stadium. Players were evacuated onto these boats, taken straight to the airport and flew home in their kit because they couldn't go back to the hotel because the local support was so angry. They actually 
tore the town up, wrecked the stadium, set the stadium on fire, and I believe two or three people died. Now, there is no away fans to fight with. They're just kind of fighting with themselves. So there's no, it's not like, you know, Celtic Rangers having a scuffle in the car park. It's not that. There were no away fans there. It was all their own fans. And these stories happen time and time and time again because that passion just overflows. The police don't stop trouble. They clear up trouble. They let it happen and they pick up the pieces and they clear away the mess. They don't stop issues here. You can't play without a certificate from the police saying, yes, that's okay. We've got enough police officers to be there. For some games, you arrive to the stadium in armoured personnel carriers for procedure versus person. That's the game of the year. That's the one that, you know, you, it, it's the Celtic Rangers. It's the, it's the, the derby. And like you said, that year it was held in solo because no one in Jakarta wanted the game held there. They didn't want them to tear the town up. They're fed up of dealing with with deaths, with injury, with with hooliganism, with cars being overturned, with fights in the stadium, with fights in the car park. Um, I've seen it too often. I've seen guys hit with bricks who are standing next to me as I'm trying to go into a, a press conference. I've had to be moved away. Um, you can't put the passion for the game here in terms that Europeans understand. You just can't. It, it's just not. Uh, with Europeans, there's a line in the sand, you know. You have a fight, we saw back in the 70s and 80s, there'd be firms, there'd be scuffles, things would happen. Here, there is no line in the sand. You know, people have died at football over the last 10 years. There hasn't been any deaths last season, the year before there was, the year before there was. Supporters clashing, people getting injured. There's no, well, he's injured now, let's stop. No, they just keep going. Um, it's a sad truth here. The passion just spills over into violence because there is no control. They, they can't stop themselves. And um, again, as a coach, it's one of those things that you just have to, to take on board and deal with and get your head around. And we'll add a few chapters to my book. <laughs> as a coach, final question, where yeah. are you going? Are you staying in Southeast Asia? Are you staying in Indonesia? Um, obviously, you're locked down in Jakarta at the moment, but what's the future for you? Um, I've, done a, I've done a really hard 10-year shift. You know, and, I, and I've been... I got the job, as we discussed earlier, it was a shock job offer. And I was a number one for the last 10 years and never really have taken, I've never had the ability to take some time out and, and develop myself. Um, I've always had to learn on the job and hope that the decisions I make when they don't work out don't cost me the job. Sometimes they have, but you learn. Um, all my learning has been done on the job. So I, I, I'm like, I like currently to take some time out to go and improve myself recently with the national team of indonesia i was up against the, the head coach of uae took holland to the world cup final um, the head coach of thailand took south korea to the quarterfinals of the world cup and they're against me on the sideline now that's not to be unconfident in me because on my day you know I, i'm i'm confident that i can put a team out that will challenge them but at the same time you just you know in your own head when you're sitting down evaluating your own performance you're thinking to yourself do you know what? I just I've got this real urge in me to just go away and, and learn and to to really take some time to self develop and self learn. I, I, I'm, there's a, that's a real passion of mine right now. I've done the graft. I've, I've you know I've achieved the CV. I've been a national teammate coach. I've won leagues, and I'd like to take some time now just to take a step back for a little bit of time and just 
go and watch other coaches coach, go and see top guys work, to go and visit some clubs, to to do a little bit of, uh, you know, self-help, if you like. But in saying that, you know, I can't necessarily pick and choose. And, and if a job comes along, um, then especially in this day and age when, when everybody's struggling, everyone's in a situation where they're looking at their finances or their job, you know, I might need to take a job. And if I think in terms of Indonesia, I've got the T-shirt. I've done it. Um, I, I, I don't need to prove myself here anymore. But I would like to expand my knowledge. I'd like to go to a different culture. I'd like to go to a different part of the world. I'd like to experience football somewhere else. There's no real urge in me to get back to Europe or to get back to England. I'm not really that bothered about working back there now. Um, I really enjoy being able to talk about different cultures and, and the challenges that brings to work in different environments. So somewhere else, to be able to move on somewhere else, not necessarily national team, possibly even be a number two and take some time working under a you know, a very well-known head coach and, and, and learn some things from him without having to put my head on the chopping block every time. It's an uncertain, uncertain time for me right now, but, but one I'm relishing and one I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how things transpire. Simon McMenemy, thank you very much. More than welcome, more than welcome. Thanks for having me, Richard. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Thank you.